Well, we'll be turning to Deuteronomy 33 in a moment. But an interesting thing, Christianity Today, the online, is recommending a book, a new book entitled Kierkegaard's Spiritual Writings. And it's written by a man called Soren Kierkegaard. I must admit I've never heard of him. But the accompanying texts promotes meeting God in the silence. This is coming from Christianity Today, which is produced by the Billy Graham organization. It says, praying is not listening to oneself speak, but is about becoming silent. And in becoming silent, waiting until the one who prays hears God. And the comment here was, this is not biblical prayer. It is the Roman Catholic contemplative mysticism. Biblical prayer is talking with God, and God's voice is heard through his revealed word. Christianity today gave no hint of warning about this man's heresies. For one thing, he popularized existentialism in contrast to biblical absolutes. We've been saying that there are no absolutes now in the modern world. Robert Runcie, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, said he was indebted to Kierkegaard's idea that religion had nothing to do with the rational part of your mind. And this is just further proof. You know, if we need further proof, it's not necessary. But it's proof again that contemplative prayer is creeping into mainstream churches. And I read a bit the other day about a a mystic called Madame Goyon. She was a Roman Catholic mystic, an extreme type of mysticism. The school of mysticism that she adhered to sometimes was called quietism. It was an extreme form of Roman Catholic mysticism that emphasized the cleaning of one's inner life and included the belief that one could see Christ visibly. She taught a lot of strange things. She taught that we can know of God by passing forward into God, going into a mindless meditative state where we can get in touch with the Christ within the self, merge with that Christ and be lifted into ecstasy. That came from the mindless mysticism of Madame Guyon. And she promoted contemplative silence in the presence of God, which is an attempt to empty the mind of conscious thoughts to commune with God as an experience and you know she's plenty of followers around today as we have been saying week after week there's a man called Brennan Manning who is also a contemplative and he quotes this man Thomas Merton that we have spoken about who was a Roman Catholic monk And in a book called The Signature of Jesus, 
Here's what he says. During a conference on contemplative prayer, the question was put to Thomas Merton, how can we best help people to attain union with God? Merton's answer was very clear. We must tell them that they are already united with God. Contemplative prayer is nothing other than coming into consciousness of what is already there. That's the, that's the basis of it. And uh, Lighthouse Trails makes the comment, as Merton and Guyon did, those practicing contemplative prayer ultimately come to believe that God is in all people and in all things. This is the fruit of contemplative prayer. The reason for this is that in that altered state of silence, they say it's the same as the Hindu transcendental state. There are in that silence demonic influence. It's as simple as that. But you know, after her death, Guyon's works were published by a Dutch Protestant pastor, and her books became popular among Lutherans, Methodists and Moravians. And today they are popular throughout evangelicalism and even among people who would think they were fundamentalists. According to David Cloud, for many decades Moody Press has published an edition of Madame Guyon's autobiography. It contains no disclaimer of her spiritual and doctrinal errors. In fact, the introduction states... We offer no word of apology for publishing the autobiography of Madame Goyon. Those expressions of devotion to her church that found vent in her writings. And at one stage, Campus Crusade compared Madame Goyon's autobiography with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and recommended it without reservation. So... I just bring these things to you to, to make you realise that contemplative prayer is creeping in all over the place. Right, let's turn to Deuteronomy 33. And we read from verse 1. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai, and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. A fiery law uh, for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. And Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. He was king in Jeshurun, or Israel, when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. I read some of that, and I'll look at it later in the Amplified Version. It makes it perhaps a little bit clearer. Verse 3 in particular. Yes, he loves the, his people. 
all those consecrated to him are in your hand. They followed in your steps. They accepted your word and received direction from you. We saw, as we mentioned last week, in chapter 32, we saw those prophecies rather foreboding for Israel as to how they would desert their God in the future. However, chapter 33 is one of blessings. It's just full of various blessings to the various tribes. Moses, the man of God, was soon to die, and through him God spoke to Israel for the last time, inspired by the Spirit of God. And I saw a quotation during the week, and thinking of the fact that Moses' words were inspired by the Spirit of God. F.B. Mayer, writer of a few years ago, talking uh, about inspiration, here's what he says. We must not speak of Scripture as having been once inspired by the Spirit of God. It's very easy to get into that mindset. The, the Bible was inspired, and that's it. But what he's saying is we must not speak of Scripture as having been once inspired by the Spirit of God, as though it were not so now, but as still being inspired. He says we should think of the, the Word of God as we read it, it is still being inspired. The bush burns with fire. Speaking of Moses and the burning bush, it, it still burned. The voice of God speaks in it. The word gives living force to the words. The word, with a capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ gives living force to the words. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that word, the Lord Jesus, gives living force to the words of scripture as we read them. The words are, as our Lord affirmed, both spirit and life. Jesus, speaking in John 6, 63, said, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit, and they are life. So, as we read God's Word, we must remember that. It's not just that they were inspired one time and written, and that's it. It's a living Word, and we should not forget that. And so Moses starts here to give an account of the giving of the law at Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai. And from there he led his people through the wilderness. Until now they were at the entrance to the promised land. Just waiting to go in. It was at Sinai that he gave them his law. He rose up from Seir, it says, looking at verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. What was so special about God at Seir? Seir was the, the land of Edom. 
And if you go back to Numbers 21 and verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. The people had rebelled against God, and God sent fiery serpents among the people. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. It came to pass that a serpent had bitten any man. When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. What a wonderful type this was of our Lord Jesus Christ being raised up on a cross for the sins of the world. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How important that picture in Seir was. Jesus could point to it and say as Moses lifted up that serpent even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He rose up from Seir unto them and he shined forth from Mount Paran. He flashed forth some versions say, from Mount Paran. Numbers 13.26 They went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back forth word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The spies had gone into the promised land. They came back to Paran. And here again there was rebellion. They refused to go into the land. They rebelled against Moses. They took up stones to throw stones at him. God's reply to Israel in verse 12 of 
Numbers 13, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. God had said he would destroy them and make a nation from Moses. Verse 13, Moses said, Moses put up a plea on behalf of the people. Pardon, I beseech thee, in verse 19, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Oh, you've forgiven them each time until now. Oh God, show your great mercy and forgive them. Then in verse 20, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. A wonderful promise that that will happen in the future, yet to take place. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely... They shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. He shined forth from Mount Paran. And of course in Mount Paran, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, way back in the start of Deuteronomy, what does it say? Where was this speech that Moses was giving? Where did it come from? And it starts in verse 1. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel from this side, Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel. God came to Sinai with 10,000 of his holy ones to present a law which to those who failed to keep it was a fire. A law written by God's hand to his beloved people. You know, the fire at Sinai, when God gave that law, was terrifying for those who looked upon it. If you go away over to Hebrews, we get the writer to the Hebrews, who was writing to Jewish converts. Verse Chapter 12 and verse 18. He says, for we, ye are not come. He's talking that these people have come to Christ. But he says, ye have not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned and thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Thank God we do not come to a God like that now. This was a law, a fiery law, which God was giving Israel at Sinai. 
But he goes on, the writer. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake. We are come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told to approach him with boldness. That we may obtain mercy and help in times of need. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Paul speaking to the Ephesians. He says... 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and had set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That great power which raised Christ Jesus from the dead, we are come to him. Colossians 3 verse 1 If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The law had been written by God's hand. Christ when he rose from the dead. God set him at his own right hand. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ has completed his work and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we come to him. Not through a mountain burning with fire. Not through a fiery law. But we are come. Because he has died. And shed his precious blood. And is seated at God's right hand. And we come to him. And encouraged to come. With boldness. To obtain help and mercy and succour. In times of need. Now we come in the next verse to four wonderful truths, wonderful promises which apply equally to you and to me as it did for Israel in the days of old. Verse 3. I'm going to read it uh, from the Amplified Version. Verse 3. 
Yes, he loves his people. Those Israelites were a rebellious nation, forsaking their God time after time after time. But here we read these wonderful words. He loves his people. What about sinful man? You and me. Ephesians 2.1 And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5 Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. Colossians 2.13 And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. And when you consider this, in John 15 verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. His Father, who could say of the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the same way as God loved his son, that is the way Jesus loves me. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. How does Jesus love us? In the same way as the Father loved him, Jesus says, I have loved you. Amazing. Amazing. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Paul could say in Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh what a saviour that he died for me. From condemnation he hath made me free. He that believeth on the Son, said he, hath everlasting life. All my iniquities on him were laid. All my indebtedness by him was paid. All who believe in him, the Lord hath said, hath everlasting life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, message ever new. He that believeth on the Son, is true hath everlasting life and the other hymn says God loved the world of sinners lost and ruined by the fall salvation full at highest cost he offers free to all oh twas love twas wondrous love the love of God to me it brought my saviour from above to die on Calvary what's it say he loves his people. He loves his people. 
and then it says all his saints are in thy hand all his saints are in thy hand this obviously applies to God's chosen people Israel but it is true of every believer you and me Colossians 3 verse 1 if ye then be risen with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God Ephesians 2 5 even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus Christ has been exalted by God and where Christ sits in glory at the right hand of God his father and what about us we have been he's raised us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ where is Christ sitting at the right hand of his father it says in verse 3 all his saints are in his hand what is the New, New Testament definition of a saint one who is separated for the service of Jesus Christ and Jesus tells us quite plainly that he holds us in his hand and in his father's hand John 10:28. and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand all his saints are in thy hand and then in verse uh, 3 again we come to the third point and they sit down at his feet they sit down at his feet an expression in scripture sitting at the feet of Paul in Acts 22 verse 3 says I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus a city of Cilicia yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day meaning when he said it I was sitting at the feet of Gamaliel meaning those who were listening to their teacher's instruction and are said to be at his feet in the presence of the master listening to his every word they sit down at his feet the saints sit down at his feet you know I was reminded of Luke 10 and verse 38 now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house it appeared that perhaps Martha was the eldest and Lazarus and uh, Mary 
were younger than she was because it says received him into her house and she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus feet and heard his word she was sitting at the feet of Jesus learning and listening to everything he said but Martha was cumbered about much serving well I suppose she was 12 or 13 people suddenly arriving for tea must have been a little bit disconcerting and she came to him and said Lord dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone bid her therefore that she help me Jesus answered and said unto her I'm sure in a very loving way Martha Martha thou art careful and troubled about many things but one thing is needful and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her she sat Mary at the feet of Jesus listening and learning now, taking this position of sitting at the feet of somebody also shows a willingness to be humble humble enough to learn 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 we have charity suffereth long and is kind charity envieth not charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up we need to have a humble spirit Colossians 2.18 let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind how easy it is to be puffed up puffed up Strong says to bear one's self loftily to be proud James 4 6 says but he giveth more grace wherefore he saith God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble 1 Peter 5 5 likewise ye younger submit yourselves unto the elder yea all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble Isaiah 61 verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels you know the garments of salvation and Christian witness include clothing of humility and I said here no overcoat of pride if you are sitting at someone's feet it is hard to be puffed up you know God is looking for those who are willing to submit to him James 4 verse 7 says submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you 
apparently submit in this sense it could be a Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader we have a leader and we are soldiers of Jesus Christ and a soldier in an army has to submit to his superior officer his leader his monarch we're in a battle these days we have to uphold the teachings of Jesus Christ and we must submit to them we must submit, submit to him we are in a battle we have to oppose the evil one submit yourselves to God resist the devil line up in military formation because we are in a battle today for the truth of God's word and for the witness in this world of Jesus Christ and then in a non-military use uh, Strong says submission meant a voluntary attitude of giving in cooperating assuming responsibility and carrying a burden a burden for Jesus Christ we submit to him we cooperate in the work of Jesus Christ on this earth we assume responsibility and we carry within our hearts a burden for the truth of God's word submit yourselves therefore to God sit at his feet learn and then resist the devil and he will flee from you and finally the last thing it says in verse 3 each one receiveth of thy words God will teach us his way you know the psalmist over and over again says teach me teach me 25 verse 5 lead me in thy truth and teach me for thou art the God of my salvation on thee do I wait all the day he will teach us his word each receiveth of thy words Psalm 27 11 teach me thy way O Lord and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies Psalm 86 11 teach me thy way O Lord I will walk in thy truth unite my heart to fear thy name may we each one walk in thy truth O God that should be our prayer teach me thy way Jesus said I am the way if we follow him we will walk in his way he will teach us and he will help us day by day to walk in his truth Psalm 16:11. thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy and look at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore thou wilt show me 
the path of life. As we read God's word, he will teach us. We will receive of his words. He will direct us. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If we follow our Saviour, we will find that he is the way, he is the, tr the truth, and he is the life. May God help us day by day. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you.